Over the past few weeks, we have shared together with a topic that um, has um, been enlightening, perhaps, and yet has been, I can speak this truthfully, has been difficult to preach. Um, Dealing with the seven deadly sins, of course, uh, one of the things that uh, preachers have to acknowledge um, as they get up is that they are preaching to themselves as much as they are preaching to anyone else. But um, for fear of, uh, of stepping out beyond and preaching more to you, um, it has been a difficult, difficult sermon series to share. And I must say that the seven deadly sins are killing me this morning. <laughs> um, I, the topic is lust, and uh, we, we have put this off to the very end. Actually, it is the, it is the seventh as it is listed in uh, the set of sins that we call the, so dangerous that they uh, might evolve to the erosion of our souls. And so we consider this last uh, topic together. And uh, as I reflect, I was thinking about particularly uh, our move to Warner Robins, Georgia, a few years back. Sue and I uh, moved there in 2005. I was appointed as the pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church. Uh, when we moved to Warner Robins, uh, we we entered the city by way of the uh, the gateway the 247 that comes off of I 75 and into town. Um, it was shortly after we got there that I realized that the city leaders were dealing with a situation out at the interstate that I had taken notice of when we we uh, pulled into town, and that was that that there was an establishment. Uh, there with a large billboard that uh, invited all who were interested to come to Cafe Erotica, Cafe Erotica, which was uh, quite an establishment. Uh, but the city leaders did not feel like it was representative of of what they wanted Warner Robins to be known for. And so they were, were coming up with as many ideas as they possibly could of how to shut Cafe Erotica down and not let it be there any longer. I don't know exactly how that evolved and what came to be, but I, I heard that one of the city leaders finally just purchased the property on which the establishment sat and then dismissed them as clients in that area. And so that, that business faded away, they took the billboard down, and all seemed to be calm. Um, interestingly enough, only a few months had passed, and someone else on the next lot over opened another such establishment. And so it was obvious that this seemed to be a losing battle on the part of the, the city leaders, and... Uh, so I think that they gave it up. It may be in your mind that this is an indication of just the state of our country and maybe even the world at this point that this would be such an issue. Uh, and 
I would say that there is probably a greater awareness of this in our world today simply because uh, we are so connected uh, with so many informational sources. And there is this awareness of at least in our midst of an earlier innocence, even though that innocence may not have been so true to the culture that surrounded it. <clears throat> there was a sense of innocence there. I, I have particularly been aware of this with the, uh, the one of my favorite shows of all time is, uh, is the Andy Griffith show um, and the stories about Mayberry. And of course, uh, nothing ever uh, went on uh, of this nature in, in Mayberry at all. So that was off the table. But in, in, the, in one of the, the other favorite shows of mine, um, I, was, I was reflecting on this even just recently. With the death of Mary Tyler Moore, I was remembering back to how she was involved on the, on the Dick Van Dyke show. Do, do any of you remember this? And how in, in, their, in their married life together, that in the master bedroom, there were single beds. Do, do you have any recall of that? And in fact, it was a part, as I have understood, that, that they could not even sit on the bed without at least one foot being on the floor. And so there was a regulation to sort of exactly what was being even, even uh, a part of the, the show that you were watching. Anything that would be suggested was, was just not in the picture. And we think to ourselves, oh, if, if only life could be so innocent. But it's not. And that's what I want to share with you is this, this is not just about our culture today, but this is about every culture that has ever been, including Christ's culture and the cultures before Christ, that lust has been a part of the culture and that it has been there for for. Uh, for many, many, many generations prior to our even becoming sensitive to it today. Even our early church fathers and mothers, no doubt, struggled with this, but particularly I'm thinking about Augustine right now and how in his confessions he wrote these words. He said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Now, he was thinking um, and sharing sort of his prayer as a young man at this point, but he, he was so reflective of, of, of everything that was going on in his world as well. Paul's letter uh, to Thessalonica that we have had that uh, segment read from this morning is not reflecting just that Thessalonica had a problem with lust where other communities did not. Um, it was just that this letter particularly had to be addressed to them. It wasn't that all of the other places around the Aegean Sea were not also, also struggling with the same matters that Thessalonica was struggling with. He says in this letter, for them to abstain from fornication, which is just another way of saying casual sex, to abstain from this and not let it be a part of who you are. That word is an interesting word. It's one that we do not hear very often. But I, 
a few years back when I was at annual conference uh, down in Savannah, Georgia, this annual meeting where clergy and delegates, lay, lay delegates come together uh, to discuss church business and uh, to share life. We had an afternoon where there was an opportunity for us to go to a mission event uh, close by. There were all kinds of things that we, we could be involved with. We could uh, be uh, involved with Habitat for Humanity or hospital chaplaincy. One of the places that we went to was uh, the old Savannah City Mission. And there was a van that pulled up at annual conference. Um, and in fact, it was uh, picking up people through the day. But on the van that I got onto, there were only a, two or three people that were on the van and headed in that direction. The driver happened to be one of the guys that was cared for by the, the, the mission and had involved himself in uh, becoming a part of the organization, the structure there. And I was sitting up near the front and he was uh, making conversation and I was chatting with him. And he said something that caught me off guard. He, He said, I have a problem with fornication. And I thought, I've misunderstood what he said. And uh, because you just don't ever hear that word, you know. And, and I said, what? And he said, I have a problem with fornication. And I didn't know what to say <laughs> at that point. And, and he continued, he said, he said, but, but I've been chased for six months. And I said, oh, and I know, knew nothing else to say at that point and don't remember anything else about the conversation. But I thought to myself, we have gone back into a biblical language that even I do not use. And yet he was feeling very connected with what he had been reading. Our culture is infused with sex. And even though we didn't invent it, perhaps we have perfected it. Um, pornography is a billion, hear me on this, billion dollar industry. Multiple billions of dollars are spent not only in the United States, but also around the world. And this is a part of the culture in which we are, are living. In fact, the churches today that I am aware of are, are doing are doing their best to stay relevant to this particular issue. One church in particular, strangely enough, in seeking to be relevant, even named itself in regard to this issue. You know what it called itself? And this is a United Methodist Church. It was formed about three years ago. It is called 50 Shades of Grace United (laughs) Methodist Church. I told Sue, I said, I think I could have come up with a better one than that. But it was, it was obviously, it was obviously on the minds of the people that were doing the organizing for that church that they wanted to be relevant to people. Uh, Frederick Beekner says that lust is the craving of salt in a person who is dying of thirst. Think about that just a little bit. That's a fascinating fascinating definition. Lust is the craving for salt in a person who is dying of thirst. You remember Moses went up the mountain. He came down with the Ten Commandments. And as these were shared, the seventh in that list was thou shalt not commit adultery. It seems pretty clear, doesn't it, to us? I mean, it is no quibbling over this as to what that means. And yet even the leaders of Israel 
post-Moses had struggled with what this would mean in their lives because you always are making adjustments in your mind to whom this might apply. King David, as he looked down on Bathsheba and then had her brought to his uh, royal palace, and then as he tried to cover up the deed of the affair that he orchestrated with her, um, all of this was beyond his seeing until the prophet Nathan came to him and spoke words of truth that he was able to hear. The thing that is so remarkable to me is that the people of Israel let him get away with it. There in the scripture, there was the, the direction in these, in these mosaic laws that were developed and, and uh, became such an intricate part of life in Israel. There was specific instruction as to ha- how to handle persons like this, and it wasn't good. And yet, David never ceased to be King David on account of this. Exceptions were made to the rule. And yet everyone knew that this was not right. As Solomon was growing up in this household, as his life was being lived out, surely he knew. And he was trying to think to himself, how can I do better than my father who made exceptions to the rules. And so in an effort to not make an exception to the rule, what did he do? He just began to annex wife after wife after wife until there was no, uh, no question about his relationships with other women. He just would marry them if he wanted to, to have a relationship with them. He added to his kingdom in order to prevent him from being disloyal. It's any, is it any wonder that Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, in his Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said not to commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's interesting how he applies this particularly to the men in this patriarchal culture, which would have been far more inclined to blame the woman than to blame the man. Jesus is switching gears on the culture right there. Paul's letters are this beckoning for us In 1 Corinthians, he says, for your body to be considered a temple of God. And here, in this passage particularly, did you hear how he's saying not to do harm to others? He says that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother our sister. This is the matter that's so crucial. It reminds me of John Wesley's general rules. Three rules that John Wesley would preach to those that would listen. He would say, he would say, do no harm, do good. And then this last one is interesting because he said, attend to the ordinances. That was his way of saying, 
Take communion, go to church, have church at home, be in prayer, be a people that live into the very love relationship that you want to have with God. So do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Stay in love with God in your life. And these are good instructions, especially about this topic of lust, because there is a destructive nature in casual sex. Christopher West says, sex is not just about sex. The way we understand and express our sexuality points to our deepest held convictions about who we are and who God is. The meaning of love, the ordering of society, and even the ordering of the entire universe. Now this is a little hard to believe, isn't it? that someone's Saturday night fling might have something to do with the entire universe. Third-rate romance, low-rent rendezvous is just about third-rate romance, low-rent rendezvous. It's not about the universe. And yet, I believe he is on to something here. That there is this erosion of the soul. The more we allow ourselves to be filled with a sense of misunderstanding about the nature of the gift of sexuality and sex, we find ourselves becoming less the person that God wishes us to be. Lust is a deadly sin. One good way to see all of this is, of course, in this celebration of wild and expressive nature called Mardi Gras. And you will see it if you turn on your televisions or flip on your computers. I will tell you to be careful if you Google Mardi Gras and New Orleans in the same query. It is amazing what will come up because persons are wild and unrestrained during these days. I guess perhaps because they're thinking to themselves that Lent is a time in which we would put all of this silliness aside. And yet this is a way of, of undoing what Lent is supposed to be. Lent sets the precedence for us to know how to live our lives eternally, not just for a season. Maxie Dunham says that lust is desire apart from commitment and responsibility. How can we change this? I love the story that Jesus uh, is, that is told of Jesus by John in the sixth chapter of his gospel telling about how a woman was brought to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes that brought her said to Jesus she was caught in the very act of adultery and they threw her at Jesus' feet. And of course the implication was, okay, so what are you going to tell us to do with her? They already knew what to do with her. The scriptures, they said, the Bible's telling, Moses' is telling, is such that we are to put her to death. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus was scribbling, doodling in the sand, and looked up at them. Do you remember what he said to them? He who is without sin cast the first stone. And they scattered to their corners 
And when no one was any longer there, he looked at this precious woman and spoke to her and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and from now on do not sin again. She knew that she had been caught. I have a question for you. It raises my awareness when I think about who it was that they brought. They threw the woman there from this patriarchal structure. They threw the woman there at Jesus' feet. I want to ask, where was the man? Where was the man? It takes two to tango, right? Where is the other accused? They had let him off. Obviously, scot free. Neither do I condemn you, was Jesus' look in a new way at an old subject. This is not about condemnation or judgment. This is about being freed in life to live in new ways. And so what do we do with this information? I revert to John Wesley again. Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. Say this with me. Do no harm. Do good. And stay in love with God. Do that and you will live in Christ. As we come to share in this service of Holy Communion, I'd ask that you would turn to page 12 at the front of your hymnal and let's look there together as we confess our sins.